0: Scripture reading this morning comes from Habakkuk chapter two. We're going through the book of Habakkuk in a series. This is our third sermon in this series. And as you find that small little book in your Bible that's sometimes hard to hard to seek out, I just want to thank you for your attention. Uh, this is a tough little book, as you might have discovered after the last couple of weeks, and um, it's so helpful, so encouraging to our life with the Lord. And I realize that as we come into this uh, sanctuary every week, we're fighting against distraction. We're fighting against you know lists in our minds or other things that are occupying our time. And so I'm constantly calling and encouraging you, especially during this little 30-minute segment, to really be focused on what's being set up here. Because what we're saying at Christ Community Church is the Word of God is really coming out into this congregation through the book of Habakkuk, and I happen to be the representative this morning. Uh, But when we think about giving your time and your weight towards the pulpit, you, you as a congregant and us as a family have to try to help each other. And so if you have cell phones that need to be turned off, it's always helpful to turn those off prior to uh, this point. If you have a small child or you have a small bladder, it's helpful to be addressing those things before you come into the congregation. So that when you walk in, as we did this inquirer's class, we had 25 folks in our inquirer's class uh, yesterday. We talked about when you come into a worship service, what's happening is that God is the audience and we are the performers. It's not you're the audience and I'm performing, but it's God the audience, and we come together to worship one entity. That's the Lord. Uh, the other thing that can be a, stra- a distraction is small children. And so if you have a small child and you're you're captured by them and you're capt- they're capturing the attention of other people in your row, then they're shifting away from the very thing at the very moment that many people have come to hear just for this half hour. And so if you have a small child, I would not want you to get your two-year-old to act like an adult because I don't think that's a possibility. It wasn't possible for my two-year-old. That would be asking me to preach without breathing. But you can have your child in the lobby area and watch. You can have your child in the uh, library area and watch. Or you can be in the nursery area as well. So those are helpful we're all part of this family and we're all trying to help each other that at this very 30 minute segment that we want all weight and all attention to this particular spot not for my glory but for the glory of God and I know that many of you are like me you come in after a long week and this is your moment to say Paul I need a buffet today I have run out of fuel And I am coming to get all that I can out of this particular half hour. So if you're providing or your family is providing a distraction to that, I'm just asking you in the kindness with a big smile on my face way to you take your attention away from gathering the attention of other people because we want all the attention right here. And specifically, we want it on the book of Habakkuk chapter 2. So we're going to read this chapter beginning in chapter 2 verse 2 and to the end of the chapter and you might remember Habakkuk has had a second complaint and now this is God responding back to Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 2 and the Lord answered me write the vision make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it for still the vision awaits its appointed time it hastens to the end it will not lie if it seems slow wait for it It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he is never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him, and say, Woe to him who heats up for what is not his own! For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those awake who make you tremble, when you will be spoiled for them? Because you have plundered many nations, and all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and to all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain from his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house. By cutting off many peoples, you have forfeited your own life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond, woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision." The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrify them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities and to all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Let's take a moment to reflect on God's word. At this point, we'll dismiss the kindergarten and first graders through the back. I'm going to read the closing lines to a very famous poem. Two roads diverged in a wood. And I, I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. You probably remember the poem, The Road Less Traveled, the Robert Frost poem. He stands and he peers down these two different paths and he has to choose one path or the other. He has some longing to go down them both. They have some interest and he just decides he has to go down one that's less traveled by. And for him it made all the difference in the poem. And sometimes that's the way life seems, I'm sure, to you. Just some sort of endless series of choices. You wake up and you, you, you peer down this path and then you peer down this path and you ask yourself, well, which way should I be going here? Should I go down this way? Should I go down another way? The psalmist of Psalm 1 seems to have Frost's idea of two ways in his mind as well. He opens his psalm, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. And then he closes his psalm, For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So the psalmist opens up this song book, and as you sing it, you understand there's two different paths you can find yourself on. You can find yourself on the path of the righteous, or you can find yourself on the path of the wicked. And the same theme emerges here in Habakkuk chapter 2 as God responds to Habakkuk's second prayer. And just notice verse 4 because it provides the contrast for us. Behold, or pay attention, here's one way to be living your life. His soul is puffed up. His desires are not upright. That's the way of the wicked. But, and then here's the second way, the righteous will live by faith. So even in God's answer back to Habakkuk, it seems to be this same idea that there are two different paths that diverge in a wood and you look down these paths and you have to ask yourself, which path am I going to be on? Am I going to live on the way of the wicked, puffed up, when my desires are not upright, or will I live by faith? And so this morning as we look at uh, this particular passage, we're going to do just what uh, the psalmist would do, or just what Habakkuk would do. We're, we're going to see these two paths. We're going to look down these corridors and ask ourselves, are we on which, which path are we on? So, the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous. Let's start out by the way of the wicked. In, you might remember in Habakkuk chapter 1, Habakkuk is frustrated. Because that the people inside the church, he sees, are the problem. And he says, I'm not really concerned about the righteousness of the people in the culture. What I'm concerned is about the people inside the church. They're not following after you. And it seems like your law is paralyzed, he says. So God, why don't you do something? Why don't you come and, and exercise some kind of discipline on the folks inside the four walls? And Habakkuk gets an answer back from God. And God says, Habakkuk, if I tell you what my answer is, you won't believe it. And Habakkuk says, tell me anyway. And then when God tells him, Habakkuk says, I don't believe it. And what he says is, I'm going to take a more evil people, the Babylonians, and I'm going to ship them down to where you live. And they're going to wreak havoc on you, and they're going to take your houses, and they're going to move in, and you're going to be shipped off to Babylon and be slaves. That's my answer to your prayer. And now Habakkuk, who originally had one problem with the Lord, now has a much bigger problem with the Lord. And he comes back at the Lord pretty hard in his second prayer. Basically saying, if you remember last week's sermon, I don't get you. You do not operate the way I thought you were going to operate. And then at the end of his prayer, he just says, I'm going to wait. Chapter 2, verse 1. I will take my stand at my watch post. And then the Lord answers him back. Write a vision. Make it plain. Verse 3. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. And if it hastens, it hastens to the end and it will not lie. And if it seems slow, wait for it. Habakkuk, something's going to happen. And even if it seems slow in your time frame, trust me, I'm at work. I'm making things come together good and so really most of the chapter here from verse six all the way to the end of the chapter is a song it's one particular song and you might think of it as the song of woe because there's five different woes through this song and so you could think of it as five different hymns woe to this group then he comes back and says let's sing the same tune but another group woe to this group and he does it five different times. So let's look at these five different stanzas. The first two woes go together, verse 6 and verse 9. Woe to him who heats up what is not his what is not his own. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high and to be safe from the reach of all harm. And so whether you're a person or a nation, if you're gaining from evil times, if you're Praying on other people. If you're thinking, I can steal from these people and then I can build a castle with a gate around it. I can be up high and all harm will be away from me. Then God is saying, woe to a person like that. Woe to a nation like that. And this is what He says is going to happen to that group of people. Verse 7. Your debtors will suddenly arise. And then you will be spoil for them. There's going to be a turnaround at some point. And you have been taking their spoil, and one day your debtors are going to rise up and they're going to look back at you and they're going to be taking you as spoil. Verse 8 Because you have plundered many nations, the people shall plunder you. Verse 10 You have devised shame. For your house. You were looking for glory. You were looking for a nest up high. You were looking for everybody to look at you. And there's going to be a day that is going, going to come for this group of people, or these people who do this, or this nation that you will bring shame on your house. And I had to stop and just think about that for a moment, and I couldn't help resisting just thinking about Bertie Manoff. And I thought he just seemed to fit this pattern so perfectly. He swindled $65 billion, some people say. A lot from his own friend. $65 billion. When he was before the court, this is what he said. I live in a tormented state for all the pain and suffering I created. I left a le- legacy of shame. I will live with this for the rest of my life. And now what's happened? The people he has plundered, what are they doing? They are plundering him. And so he sold us or somebody sold his house for $8 million. And now everything that he'd been getting, now everybody's trying to get it back out of him. And what he thought he was, when everybody thought he was something special... When he was up on some sort of nest on high and he thought no harm could befall him, it's fallen on him. And whether that happens in our lifetime or happens when the Lord returns, this woe is woe to those people, woe to those nations who live in that way. The third stanza, verse 12, woe to him who builds a town with blood. Woe to those who create violence and kill others for their own personal satisfaction or their own personal gain. Verse 15, the fourth stanza. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink in order to gaze at their nakedness. I mean, people are getting other people drunk for the purposes of satisfying themselves sexually. That's the kind of nation that God was saying woe to that nation. Or, they were saying, I'm going to expose you as being a fool so it makes me look better. Have you ever known anybody who does this? They point to other people and they point out how stupid and foolish they are and the only reason they're doing it is so I look better. So that when I stand up next to that person, I look better because I've told you how foolish they've been. How stupid they've been. Ben, I've, I've exposed them in some way so I can add stature to myself. And the Lord is saying, woe to a people like that. Finally, the fifth stanza, verses 18 and 19. Woe to the idolater. I love how he puts it. Woe to the maker who trusts in his own creation. <laughs> How foolish can he be? I've created something out of my own hands, and then I set it up here, and then I bow down to the thing that I just finished getting off of the wood shop floor. And that's what's happening. People are creating something, and then they turn around and say, that now I'm going to bow down, and I'm going to hope that stone is going to speak to me. I mean, how foolish! That you might create something and then worship it. You might create a 401k and then you've got to turn around and bow down to it. Because you can't lose that. That's your identity. You might create your own reputation. You might create your own business. And now you turn around and you say, I've got to have it. That's who I am. I cannot lose that thing. And so God is saying to individuals and to here, particularly a nation, woe to a nation who's built on these kinds of principles. One day that nation will come to ruin. Albert Schweitzer says this about idols. Anything that you have that you cannot give away, you do not really own. It owns you. That's how you know if you're bowing down to something that you've created yourself well as we peer down this path and we look at how the babylonians have acted and we say well that's that's the way of the wicked those, those folks if they've acted that way they are on that path at least i'm not on that path Now i want us to look a little more closely I want us to look at how God diagnoses the heart of the problem. Verse 4. He is puffed up. In the Hebrew, this means you're swollen. Or you have a tumor. And the tumor is full of self-exaltation. You're trying to add glory to yourself. You're trying to add weight to yourself. You're trying to give yourself some glory. And so... God describes the wicked person who tries to fill themselves with glory. Glory in the Hebrew means weight. So it's a bunch of hollow people who don't have any real substance and so they're around on the earth and they're trying to pick up things and put them on themselves and say, this makes me significant. This makes me valuable. People must know this about me. People must understand that I have some ballast. I have some significance. I have some weight. Because of this thing. And I must make sure people know that I have it. I have weight. I have value because I have a spouse. I have weight or I have value because of I have a family. People must know that I'm usually right. That is helpful for people to know about me. Because then they'll think, I'm the smart person. And that gives me value when people say, oh, he's usually right. And so I need to make sure people know that I'm usually right. I need to make sure people know that I'm a good parent. People must know that I'm needed. I'm needed. I'm critical. If I get out of the equation of my family or my business or this city or this pulpit, then somehow it's all going to come unwound. And so I make sure people know that I'm a critical component that gives me weight. That gives me glory. People must know that I'm well read, that I'm intelligent, that I'm athletic, that I'm part of the club, or I've never been part of a club. Either way, people must appreciate me, my skills, my service. People must appreciate my preaching. You see, you can use any good thing, and it can be a God thing, and then it can be an idol, and then what you're doing is you're just using something to give yourself weight. So people think that you're somebody of substance. Listen to uh, how Chris Everett said at the end of her tennis career. Chris Everett was a famous tennis player. I had no idea who I was or what I could be away from tennis. I was depressed and afraid because so much of my life had been defined by my being a tennis champion. I was completely lost. And then listen to what she has to say. Winning made me feel like I was somebody. Winning made me feel pretty. It was like being hooked on a drug. I needed the wins, the applause in order to have an identity. So, so let's just give some honest assessment. Could you just to yourself for a moment? What what gives you your identity? What what applause must you have in order to move forward? What makes you feel like somebody? What makes you feel pretty? That you have substance. That you're not a hollow person. Whatever that is, you're trying to fill yourself with glory. And I love how the writer, the or God says it here. It's like the grave. It's never enough. You notice that the the one thing you just think if everyone could just if everyone could just say oh he's the greatest preacher after the sermon if you walked out and everyone said that's the best sermon then how long is that going to last for me? About 15 minutes. Because then I'm going to say, what are they going to think next week? They must think the same. And it's just never going to be enough. And whatever you're giving your life to, if it's not God, then it's just never going to be enough. You're always going to be like the grave. I can always take one more. When we peer down the road, The problem isn't with the people out there. The problem isn't with the Babylonians. When we peer down the road of the wicked, who do we see standing in the middle of the road? You see yourself. Alexander Solzhenitsyn writes this after years in the gulag. He says if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessarily necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and then destroy them but the dividing line but the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being You see when when we stand and we look down these roads the way of the righteous the way of the wicked we're on one road And if you can give yourself an accurate assessment, you're on that road. You're on the road with the wicked people. You're the one that God is talking about in all of these woes. In verse 16, God describes how He deals with these wicked people on this path. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around you and utter shame will come upon your glory. A cup. A cup is going to come around you and in what you thought was glorious, you're going to see is really shameful. And what is that cup? Jeremiah says this, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup, filled with the wine of my wrath and make all nations to whom I send you drink it. You see what's happening? The cup is the cup of God's wrath. And all of those people who are on the wicked path, all of those people are going to receive that cup. And so we look at ourselves. We see ourselves on that path. We see from here we're going to get this cup Of God's wrath, then we're going to ask ourselves one more question Is there any way out? Yeah, I do see myself. I see wickedness in my own heart. I understand that I am way down this well worn path of the wicked. And I really do deserve this cup. Is there anybody who can take the cup from me? What's the answer? Yes! Amen! There is somebody that He can take the cup. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus Christ says, God, is there any way that what? This cup. What is the cup? The cup of God's wrath. Is there any way that this cup can be taken from me? Answer, no. Christ, you have to drink it. And God in the flesh comes down and He takes my shame and your shame and He empties Himself of all of His glory and He takes on all of your shame. That is great news. But that's not all of it. That's like half the great news. If He takes all of my shame on the cross, what am I left with? I'm hollow. I am nothing. I have no good deeds. All I am is a little outline of a person. I need something. And Christ drained His glory out in order to take on my shame. And where did that glory go? It came to me. Do you see what's happened? We read it in our affirmation of faith. I do not consider that my present suffering is worth comparing to what? The glory that's going to be revealed in me. What glory is that? Christ's glory in me. It's not my own glory. And when Christ emptied Himself out and my shame was on Him, what happened is He emptied out His glory onto me. And so now I can stand and I can say unbelievably, I'm a child of God I'm an heir of God. I am a co-heir with Christ. That is unbelievable. If you've never heard the gospel, that is the gospel. That all of your shame got put on Christ. And His glory now runs into your life. And so we can stand before God the Father Almighty, not because of anything that I've added to myself, but Christ has clothed me with his glory, and I can enter into his presence with great confidence. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And so now I'm not on that well worn path anymore. By the grace of God, now I'm on a different path. I have put my faith in Jesus Christ, and that's the second way. The second path, the way of righteousness. The so back chapter two, verse two verse four. The righteous will live by faith. Notice, they're not living on their own accord in any way. They're living completely on faith that this is what actually happened on the cross. And so how do we know if we're on that right road? Here are some sort of observations or signs that we're on the right road. And I'm going to do this by just, you can look in the outline that's provided in your bulletin. I'm just going to look at the three ways, very quickly here in closing, of the way this verse, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, is transported into the New Testament. It's used three different times. It's a very significant verse in church history. It's a very significant verse here in the New Testament. First, Romans chapter 1, verse 17. Again, this is in your outline for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As it is written, the righteous will live by faith. You see, a righteousness had to be revealed because we couldn't create a righteousness on our own. And so God revealed a righteousness. That was Him coming in the flesh and taking on our shame and giving us His glory. How do we have a right standing before the Lord? What happened here? And we put our faith in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying. So, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel. He says in the verse preceding. For it is the power of God for everyone who believes. There's no no closing off on this. Everyone who believes in this can come and stand and be filled with the glory of God. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10 and 11. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous will live by faith. You see, what's happening here in Galatians is... Paul had gone and told them about the good news, and then a group of Judaizers came in and said, well, you know what? Yeah, that's fine, but you also need to live by the law. If you're not living by the law, then you're not getting it all. And Paul comes back and he looks at those people and says, you're foolish! You just heard the good news, and now you're attaching something else to it that you can do? No one's going to be justified by what they do everyone's going to be justified just by the free gift of grace on the cross. But what happened is a bunch of people had come back into this church and now we had a church of legalists. Yeah, I know that, but here are the things that you also have to do. When you get into a conversation with a legalist, they're not really going to point you to Christ. They're going to point you a list of things you've got to do. And if you really want to be holy, yes, you have to believe in Christ, but here are also the five things. That's how you're going to know if you run into one of these foolish people, and you're going to say, "Yeah, I need to live for Christ, but I'm not in any way justified by the way I live. I'm justified by faith in Christ alone." Finally, in the third way, Paul men- or some writer it might have been Paul mentions it in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. Listen to these few verses. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light. When you stood your ground in a great contest in in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison. You joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Just read that one more time. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Because you knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting possession. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay But my righteous one will live by faith. Now this is where Habakkuk really comes back to. I can live in evil times because of my faith in Christ. He is coming back. And I have an inheritance that cannot be touched. So although I don't need to celebrate Somebody coming and confiscating my property. It is not devastating to me. Why? I don't get my glory from that. Where I live, what I wear, what my position is, it's not adding weight to my life. This is adding weight to my life. This is what's really valuable. And now that I have that and it can never be taken away from me, then all of these things can happen... And I can live in evil times because I can trust that Christ is going to return. And so Habakkuk really gets to that point and we'll see this next week in chapter 3 as he has one final prayer. It's actually a song of praise all of chapter 3. But I want us to close by looking at the last verse in chapter 2. God is helping Habakkuk understand something here. The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before Him. Habakkuk has come. Habakkuk has had his complaints. He's opened up his life and his heart to the Lord. And finally, God is saying to Habakkuk, Habakkuk, I'm in control. I got it down. You may still have questions. You may still wonder. But I'm on my throne. I didn't slip off. I'm not asleep. I didn't take a break. I am in absolute control of all things, even evil times. So what you should do is just be silent. No no additional words needed. All of creation could be silent. Because God is in control of all things. So I'd just like to take just a couple of minutes here just to be silent before the Lord. And it might be a a time for you to say, God, this thing is creating a lot of noise in my life. And I would just like to give it to you. This relationship, this event, this lack of relationship, whatever that is... I'm just going to set it before you and I'm not going to allow it to make noise. I'm going to just say you're in control of that thing. You might ask yourself if you've peered down this road of wickedness and you've seen yourself and you haven't trusted in Christ, There, there is a way home. Jesus Christ has taken your shame and He will give you His glory if you trust in Him. Let's just spend a couple of minutes here silent before the Lord and then we'll end our service by singing to God's glory.